0: We're going to go to Galatians chapter four this morning, Galatians chapter four. Uh, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians uh, this new year and looking at the gospel. And what is it? How does it impact our lives? What do we need to, to learn from it? How do we need to continue to walk in it? All these great truths that Paul's laying out here in the book of Galatians. And so uh, we want to do that again today from chapter four. Um, and a little bit different today. We're going to do verses one through 11, and then we're going to skip a few, and we're going to go to 21. And finish out through chapter five, verse one. And the reason we're doing this is Paul is kind of building an argument here through the entire uh, entirety of chapter four, but he takes a little break in the middle to do like a little side thing, and then he comes back to it. Okay, so we're going to pick up those verses we're skipping. Now we're going to do those next week. We're not going to leave them out. All right, we, we don't do that, right? Uh, we don't leave out Bibles at Har- or Bibles. We don't leave out verses at harvest. Amen. Um, but we're going we're gonna to get all the thought together in chapter 4 today, and then we're going to come back next. We can pick up that little section, and then we'll move on to chapter 5, okay? So, verses 1 through 11, and then 21 through 5, verse 1. And Paul is going to be talking to us today about becoming going from a slave to a son, and what that looks like and what that means. So, as I was thinking about this, you know, we're, we're closing out February here this week, which means we're also closing out Black History Month here in the United States, which is a time that we set aside to recognize and to remember the great contributions of black Americans to our nation's history and, and all of those things. But inevitably, unfortunately, we also have to recognize, remember the, the shameful treatments of black Americans in our history through slavery and other things. And, and that's, that's a hard thing to, 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 to walk through and talk through at times, but it's necessary. Um, but I, was, I used to be a history teacher, and I was thinking back on this, and, you know, Thankfully, after a while, after a number of years, we finally got to the place where we were, uh, black Americans were given their freedom in the United States, but even after they technically had their freedom, there were still years where they struggled, and where there was a lot of upward climb because of racism, because of, um, you know, laws that were put in place to try to keep them from certain things and certain freedoms, Uh, just discrimination, all these kind of things were still happening in the culture despite the fact that they were given their freedom. And so there was this ongoing struggle with them for years. But even then, if you go back and you read the stories and you read the people's comments, even those slaves who were given their freedom through all the toil and the hardship and the struggle that came afterwards, they would still say that their freedom was the most invaluable thing that they had received. And even though it was hard and there was struggle... There was nothing that would make them want to give up their freedom and go back to slavery. That's the same picture that Paul's painting here of the Christian life in this chapter. That through Christ, we have been set free from slavery to sin and to the law, and there is no reason we should ever want to go back to that. That there should be this holy discontent in us that's like, that's never my life again. Because now I have freedom in Christ. And so Paul's going to admonish us with this truth today. Stand in freedom. Don't submit to slavery. Stand in the freedom that you have been given through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Don't submit again to the yoke of slavery, Paul says. He's going to build this out in several sections. So let's kind of walk through this today and we'll see um, see his points here. Let's start in verse number one. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. First point this morning is this. Christ frees me from being a slave to the world. He frees me from being a slave to the world of sin that we live in. Now he starts off here and he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different than a slave. So he's, he's calling back now to the illustration that he just used in the previous chapter. We talked about it last week, right? That with children in this time period, that they, when they were being raised, they would be given over to a guardian, someone like a, like a, basically a servant in the household, who was supposed to raise them to adulthood. And although they were the children and they were the technical heirs of the family, during those childhood years, they were actually treated more like a slave because they were under the control of this guardian. They didn't have any rights or control at this point because they were still under a guardian. But one day, they're going to own it all. It's Paul's point here, right? And so he goes on to say, he says, so we also, just like they were basically slaves to this guardian, we also were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this statement we've got to unpack a little bit here because you have to remember... The background of the book of Galatians is Paul's writing here to the church in Galatia, who was ma- which was mainly made up of Gentile believers. Okay, there would have been some Jews, but they were mi- mainly Gentiles, which means they didn't have the law, they didn't have Yahweh, they didn't have all of that history, they didn't worship God before they knew Jesus, they worshiped other gods. And during this time in the Roman and the Greek world, they would have all kinds of gods who were built on the different elements of the world, the elementary principles of the world. So they would have like a god of the sea, and a god of the wind, and a god of fertility, and they would have all these different gods connected to the, the elements of this world. And that's what Paul's referring to here. He says you were enslaved to those gods, those elementary principles of those gods, because you had to earn favor with them. Right? You, had to, you had to show yourself worthy and you had to be self-righteous by earning favor with these false gods through sacrifices and rituals. So they would choose to worship and enslave themselves through making these rituals and sacrifices because they believed if they did that, that these gods would serve them. That they would meet their needs, that they would serve whatever purpose or desire they had in their life. For example, if I was traveling to another city and I had to go across the sea, I would go and I would give a sacrifice to the God of the sea so he would give me safe travels as I went, right? Or if I wanted to build a family, I would go and give a sacrifice to the God of fertility so that I would be able to have children and they would bless our family in that way. If I needed a good crop this year to build wealth, or like, I would go and give a sacrifice to the God of the rain, so that like they, this is what they would do. They would, and they would enslave themselves to these gods through these rituals and sacrifices in order to get something from them, to prove that they were worthy to, to gain something from these false gods. Now, anytime we study God's word, we always have to understand like this was written to these people for a reason for a purpose. God, Paul was helping them understand like. Here's what God saved you out of. And although today in our culture we don't really worship these kind of things, like we don't worship the God of the wind anymore or the God, like we don't do that, but we have other elementary principles of our world and our culture today that we are called to worship in various ways. And many of us have been saved out of worshiping these false idols, these false gods in our culture Uh, One off the top for sure, especially here in America, would be money. So many people are sacrificing everything in their life to get more money. They'll work whatever job it takes. They don't care what it is. They'll work endless hours to get more of this God that they worship. They will cut corners They will mislead people when it comes to sales. They'll lie, they'll cheat, they'll do whatever it takes because they are sacrificing themselves and their character and their time in order to get what they want from this God. They're enslaved. Another example would be substances. We see over and over and over again people who get so sucked into the God of substances, could be alcohol, could be tobacco, could be drugs, could be whatever, that they will give up everything just to keep getting more of that, right? Money, relationships. I will tank my relationship as long as I can get more of that. Stability in my house, health in my actual physical body. All of this in order to get what I want from this God of substances. Cover up the pain, cover up the the trauma, cover up the, the hard life, whatever it is. And I'll enslave myself to them and sacrifice everything to get more same thing with sex almost exactly the same as substances right money relationships stability health even freedom sometimes some people will get so enslaved to the god of sex that they will violate the law to get what they want out of it and end up going to jail for the rest of their lives they're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world you could put power on that list How many people, they'll manipulate and intimidate and even abuse others in order to keep and get the power that they so desire? Could be in business, could be in the home, could be in politics, doesn't matter. Now, it's easy for some of us to look at that list and be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm I'm good with that one. No, no, not that one, not that one. And then we get down to like the one that maybe is more mundane but tends to hit all of us, which is just the God of comfort. How many times do I compromise what I know is right and good because I don't want to rock the boat? How many times do I capitulate to whatever somebody else is saying or doing because I I just want to keep the status quo. I just want to keep things convenient and comfortable. I don't want to get anybody out of tilt with anybody else because then it just makes my life miserable. So I'm just going to worship This God of comfort, and I'm going to sacrifice truth, and I'm going to sacrifice my integrity, and I'm going to sacrifice my character in order to just keep things comfortable and convenient. Ouch. Sometimes it's image or status. I'll change my looks, I'll change my likes and my dislikes, I'll change my speech, I'll change even my gender. I'll do whatever I have to do to become a chameleon and just to fit in and feel like somebody loves me and somebody cares for me and I have a place to belong. These are all the elementary principles of our world today. And Paul is saying, listen, these false gods, these idols of our culture when you worship them like this, when you sacrifice like this to them, they are enslaving you to keep having to come back for more and more and more. And then he says, but, he says, you were enslaved to these other, but, but when the fullness of time had come, when God's perfect time came to send his son into the earth, it says God sent his son. Two key things there. Number one, he sent him. This was intentional. This was a mission. Jesus came to earth to save us from our sins. He didn't just come because it was like something fun to do or because like he didn't have anything better going on up in heaven. Like he came on a purpose, on a mission to save us. God sent his son, his own son. Now, son there actually is kind of a double meaning in the sense of, it also is referring to the Son, the second member of the Trinity, who's always existed but comes in the flesh. So God himself came to earth on a mission to the people that he created. And then it says he was born of woman. We just studied this at Christmas time, right? The incarnation, the supernatural conception that God, through the Holy Spirit, placed Jesus into Mary's womb. But after that supernatural event, He was born just like the rest of us, very natural, normal, human birth. He was born of a woman. He was born as a man, 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. And then he says he was born under the law, just like us. Jesus was subject to the holy, perfect law of God. But unlike us, he perfectly fulfilled it. The thing that we couldn't do. He did it all right and he did it for us. He did it in our place. And that's why he goes on to say he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Now we don't necessarily catch it here, but in the original language, the the people who heard this originally would have known that that word redeem was a word picture. It wasn't just a word, it was a picture that Paul was painting because it literally meant to redeem was to buy someone back out of slavery. So he's building here on this imagery of slavery and being enslaved. He says, Christ came and he bought you out of that. He paid the price for your freedom from slavery by perfectly keeping the law and then going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins and crediting his perfection to our account. He used what He kept, what He did with the law, and He gave it to us. He died in our place for our sins on the cross to be that perfect sacrifice. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, He justified us before God. He made us righteous through His perfection. He redeemed those who were under the law. That's the first picture. And then the second picture, he says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Again, adoption there is a, is a word picture that Paul's giving us. That we were outside of the family, we were, we were not part of God's family, but through Christ, we are brought into the family. That we get to become sons and daughters. Jesus didn't stop at just redeeming us from sin. He didn't just solve the sin problem. He brought us into the family as fully loved, fully transformed children of God. They go hand in hand. Redemption and adoption. And today, there are so many people that think that they're saved, that think that they are following Jesus, but they only want one without the other. Here's what I mean by that. Some people want redemption without adoption. In other words, Jesus, I, I want you to fix the sin problem. Right? I, I, I feel the weight of my sin. I'm suffering the consequences of my sin. I'm hurting because of my sin. I'm broken. Please fix the sin. Like Take away the consequences. Take away the brokenness. Fix the sin problem in my life. But I don't actually want to be a part of the family. I I don't want want to submit to you as my father. I don't want to have to come and invest in other brothers and sisters in the family. I still want to live my life, do my own thing, be my own boss. Just fix the sin issue, and then I'm good. They want redemption without adoption. Or, on the flip side, you have those who want adoption without redemption. Redemption. They want the God who's going to love them and care for them and and, and show grace to them and and just shower them with his blessings, but they still want to hold on to their sin. They still want to pursue the desires of their heart and the sinful ways of this world. They don't want to give up the sin because after all, God, if you really love me, you would love me just the way I am, right? Isn't that what our culture says? Like you would let me have this if you really love me. And we'd still be good. They want the adoption, they want the family of God without the redemption from sin. But Paul says, no, no, no. They go together. They cannot be separated. It's like two sides to the same coin. Redemption and adoption work together. Christ redeems us from the slavery of sin and then he adopts us into his family. And friends, let me just be honest with you this morning. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm not trying to be harsh, but I'm just, I, you need to know this. You cannot get one without the other. If you have one and not the other, you are not saved. You're not. God wants to fully save you. He wants to redeem you and adopt you. He wants you to have all of it. You have to submit to Christ. So Paul says, he redeemed us and he adopted us so that, he says, because you are sons of God, now because you're in the family, you're adopted, he also sent the Spirit. So we have this kind of dual picture of God sending the Son. God sent the Son first to proclaim our status as righteous and free, and then he sent the Spirit so that we could actually experience what it means to be righteous and free. The Spirit does in our heart what Christ did on the cross. He comes into our hearts, he says, and he lives inside of all God's sons and daughters. Romans 8.16 says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He bears witness. He's the proof. He's the proof inside of us that, yes, we are indeed saved because we have received the Holy Spirit. And he says, inside of us, by whom we cry, Abba Father. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard that phrase. And sometimes as Christians, as the church, I'm just be honest, we like to take things like this and make them a bigger thing than they are. Right? And we have over sentimentalized this phrase in a way that I think actually does us an injustice to understanding what Paul's saying. Sometimes people will say that Abba Father means like daddy, like a little kid or a baby crying out to their father like daddy. And that's not really what it is. It's not this childlike baby talk, affection. It's, it's more than that. It's more just like dad. It's still the personal name that you would call your father. Nobody else calls him that, right? Like, it's still the name that you call him because he's your father. But it's not this cute childlike thing in the crib. No, it's this deep personal longing need for Dad, you've got to help me. I need you right now. It's calling out to our Father in a deep personal way because we know that we are lost without Him. He says, we, The Spirit helps us cry, Abba. Ah, it's like, Jesus uses the same language when he's in the garden. Before he's arrested and before he goes to the cross, he's in the garden, he's crying, he's sweating blood, he's crying out to his father, God, help me in this. That's the language Paul's using here. And so the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he takes our relationship with God from this fearful, distant view of God as the judge to this deep, personal relationship that God is our dad, our father. And and I'm fully aware that for all of us in this room, that word father and dad brings a whole slew of different emotions and experiences and thoughts. Let me just tell you today, no matter how good or bad your earthly father was, God is the perfection of what a father is. Whatever you got or didn't get from your earthly dad, God has that for you. If you'll come to him like this. So the spirit comes and he helps us cry out, Abba, Father. And he says, because of this, you are no longer a slave, but a son and an heir to the Lord. In other words, you have full access and full favor with God. You have all of it. You have full rights and privileges as a member of the family. You are an heir right alongside his son, Jesus Christ. Everything that Christ has, you have. You are an heir to the Father. Nothing can ever change that. This picture of adoption is a, a wonderful picture of the gospel. And we love to talk about it. We love to, to, to highlight it. But, in, again, in our society today, sometimes adoption can get over-glamorized. Right? We, we, we picture the sweet, young, innocent baby somewhere in the world who needs a home. You're like, oh, it would be so great to bring them in and, and, and love on them and, and do this whole thing. And, and, and it is. It is fantastic. We've, done, we've adopted in our family. And, it, man, it is a blessing from the Lord. But I want you to imagine a different scenario for a moment. Imagine that you're adopting a son, an older son, and you sit, you're right at the end of the adoption process. Like, it's almost done. You're getting ready to sign the papers, and you sit down with the social worker. And she says, by the way, let me, let, let me tell you a little bit about this 12-year-old boy that you're about to adopt. He said, um, first of all, he's been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. And even today, he still struggles. He 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 persists in burning things, and he skins animals alive sometimes. Um, And and he also he acts out sexually. She doesn't really explain what that means. She just kind of drops that in there. And then she continues on with the family history. She's like, by the way, his father and his grandfather and his great grandfather and his great great grandfather all have a history of violence. Ranging from spousal abuse all the way up to serial murder. And in the end, each and every one of them ended their own lives. Would you still want to adopt that son? Like, just honestly, would you still want to adopt that child? And if you did adopt that child, when you brought them home, would you watch them nervously as they played with your other kids? Would you be a little skittish when they reached for the knife on the kitchen counter? Would you leave them alone to watch a movie with your daughter in the dark in the living room? This son is you. And this son is me. These are the people that God adopted. Broken in our sin and in our struggle and just mired in all of our junk. And he said, yes, I want you, and I'm going to redeem you from that, and I'm going to save you from that, and I'm going to adopt you into my family so that you can have a new life as an heir of God. That's the kind of adoption Paul's talking about. That he redeems and he adopts, and it all goes together. If Christ has redeemed me from slavery to sin, why would I ever want to go back? That's Paul's question. That's what he's, he's trying to get to Galatians too. He's like, if this is where God brought you from, if he took you out of that and changed you and gave you a new home, why would you want to go back to that? So Christ frees me from being a slave to the world, but then there's more. He goes on in verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Point number two, Christ frees me from being a slave to religion. He frees me from being a slave to religion. Not just to the world, but to religion. This is a very interesting turn here that Paul takes. He says, formerly, you did not know God, right? Remember, they didn't have the law. They didn't know who God was. They were worshipping false gods. He says, you were enslaved to not gods. <laughs> I love how Paul says that, right? Like, you thought they were gods, but they weren't, they, they weren't gods. And, um, and he says, so you, Christ has saved you from that. He's brought you out of that slavery, of earning your self-righteousness from these false gods. He says, but now you have come to know God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you now have a relationship. You've come to know the true God. The word know there is connected to the Hebrew understanding of the word know in the Bible, which is not just to know about someone or to know some information about them or to have met them, but like to, to personally know them to have a relationship with him on a personal level. It's like if we were sitting on the couch watching TV and like Albert Pujols came on, I'm like, oh yeah, hey, I know Albert. And you're like, you know Albert? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I met him this one time at a fundraiser. We shook hands and everything. You're like, bro, you don't know him. You just met him. I'm like, no, no, I, I, can, tell you his, I can tell you his birth date, I can tell you his wife's name, I can tell you his batting average. Like, I know him. You're like, No. <laughs> Exactly, that's what Paul seems like. You didn't know God before. Maybe you knew some things about God, maybe you'd heard some things, maybe you'd had a couple interactions, but you didn't know. Now, now you know him. You have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. But then he almost corrects himself, he's like, actually, you're known by him. You're known by God, he says. Paul here, he's emphasizing God's role in the relationship, over our role in the relationship. There's both. Both are there. But God's is more important. God's is first. You see, his heart is for us, and he loves us even while we are rebelling against him. The church says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God loved us first. We'll give you four things real quickly here about God's love. This is just kind of a little extra add-on this morning. Number one, God's love is first. He made the first move. He loved us when we were unlovable. He uh, he loved us long before we loved him. And the only reason we get to love him is because he loved us first. So God's love is first. Number two, God's love is formative. In our relationship, it's the fact that God loves us that forms in our hearts the ability to love him back. We can't do that on our own. We can't manufacture that. We don't even know what love is until we experience the formative love of God that builds this foundation in us for us to love him back, which is the next one. Love is foundational. Our adoption into his family rests solely on the foundation of his love for us. Nothing about this adoption rests on our love for him. It's his love for us that brings us into the family. And because it's his love, and he is, number four, God's love is faithful, then we can trust that it will always last and we will be children of God forever. It's all him. It's all his love for us that secures us as his sons. He says, you know God, rather you are known by God. He said, you've experienced all of this. He says, so how then can you turn back again and want to be slaves once more? He's like, I don't get it. <laughs> He's like, what, why would you want to return to the slavery of false worship and self-righteousness? But here's the twist. This is so interesting. Remember, they weren't believing in the law before. They were believing in false gods. He says, now you're wanting to return to slavery, but you're wanting to do it through a different door. Because now they're trying to live by the law, according to the false teachers. He says you observe days and months and seasons and years. It's kind of cryptic. He's referring there to the Jewish religious calendar, right? All the holy days and the festivals and sacrifice, all the stuff that they had to do, To show that they were good Jews and surely this is what the false teachers were teaching them, right? If you really want to be a, a child of Abraham, if you want to be a child of God, you have to do all these days and all these rituals and all these things to prove your worth to God. To prove that you really love him and so that you can be saved. Paul says, no, no, no. That is the same type of empty religious activity that you were doing before you put your faith in Christ. You used to do it to false gods, now you're doing it to the real God, but it's the same fake religious activity. Different exterior, same interior. Enslaving yourselves to false worship and shameful, sinful self-righteousness. Trying to prove yourself to God. And so he's calling them now out of this second level of twisting the gospel. And then he says this, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Now just to be clear, Paul's not afraid for himself. Like Paul knows his heart is pure, his work is good, he's been laboring for the Lord. Like this isn't about Paul. He's afraid for them. He's afraid for their souls. But if this is really what they're, where they're at, if this is really what they're thinking, then he's afraid they're going to choose the slavery of sin and self-righteousness over the freedom in Christ. Christ. He's afraid that they would rather be slaves than sons. You know, as Christians, as people in the church, sometimes I think this is one of Satan's greatest strategies against us. It's to get us to do the right things with the wrong spirit. Like, think about it for a second. What if, what if, Satan actually wants you to come to church. What if he wants you to lead that small group? Or serve on that team? Or give that offering? What if he wants you to do all of those things as long as you think that that is somehow earning you favor with God? If that's keeping you from actually walking in faith with the one who saves us. I mean, think about it. I'll, I have conversations with people all the time. They're like, well, I, I know because you know, I, I pray every day to God. Yeah, great. Awesome. So do Muslims. Five times a day. Way more than most of us. Other people say, well, you know, I, I come every Sunday and I worship God and I'm here and I'm doing the thing. Yes, praise the Lord. Glad you're here. Hindus worship every week. All day. Not just for a couple hours. Others would point to Bible study. I've studied God's word. I know the word. I'm learning it. I'm growing in it. Yes, praise the Lord. I want you to learn God's word. That's why I do this every week. But you know who knows God's word better than most of us? Jehovah's Witnesses. Just being honest. I'm I'm, I'm, going to go with Mason this summer. I'm going on the mission trip. I'm going to do the thing. Yeah, awesome. Go. Serve the Lord. That doesn't save you. Mormons go on mission trips for years of their life. None of these things save us. They don't earn you anything with God. We're in a time right now in the year where especially in our city, it's very popular to observe all kinds of special days and religious restrictions and man-made rituals and ideas to try to earn something and to prove ourselves to God. And none of that matters if it doesn't start with a heart of faith. If it doesn't start with faith, all the religious activity in the world will get you nothing with God. As humans, we love to take a good thing and make it into a God thing. To take the things that God has said, yes, these are good and right and do them, And try to make it where that becomes our God. That we actually worship Bible study. Or we worship prayer. Or we worship church. Instead of worshiping the God of those things. Paul says that is just more slavery. With a different name. With a different master. And the only way out of all of that. Is living by faith in Jesus Christ. If Christ has freed me from slavery to empty rituals, why would I ever want to go back? Some of you have that story. That you were stuck in some type of church or religion for years doing the, hey, I'm going to earn my thing with God. And then one day he opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel and you were saved from that. And Paul's saying, don't ever go back to that slavery. Don't let it creep back in that's not the answer. Christ frees us from the sin of this world. He also frees us from the slavery of religious activity. And then in verse 21, skip to verse 21 now, I'm going to wrap up here. He gives us this story, this illustration, to kind of drive home the whole point. He says in verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? now but what does the scripture say cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman so brothers we are not children of the slave but of the free woman chapter 5 verse 1 for freedom christ has set you free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery Last point this morning, Christ frees me to be a son, not a slave. Now, he starts off and he says, you who desire to be under the law. So he's talking to the Galatians again. He's like, hey, all right, so this is what you want? Really, really? this is what you want? You want to be under the law again? He's like, well, then let me just, let me tell you what the law really says. Let me tell you what you're asking for here. And he points back to this story with Abraham, and he uses this kind of historical illustration. And so the story goes like this. Abraham, remember, God came and gave him a promise, right? That you're going to have a son. I'm going to make that son into a great nation, all that. And Abraham's like, yes, amen, let's go. And so they go to the promised land. Everything's going great. Ten years go by, no son. Abraham's just waiting and waiting. No son, no son. So finally, him and Sarah get tired of waiting, and they come up with their own plan. And Abraham's like, all right, here, you can't have a son but Hagar can have a son, so I'm just going to have the son with her. And so he goes and he has a son with their servant, Hagar, and names the son Ishmael. And here, Paul refers to Ishmael as the son who was born according to the flesh. Because it was by Abraham's own hand. It was by Abraham's own will and control and work that Ishmael was born. So Ishmael's born 14 years go by. And then God shows up again and says, hey, by the way, I'm ready to do that promise thing I told you about. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90, both way past baby-making age. And God supernaturally gives her a son. And she gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac here, Paul refers to him as born through promise. Because he came by God's promise and by God's supernatural hand. Not by anything Abraham or Sarah did. And Isaac, not Ishmael, is going to be the one who is the chosen son and will give birth to the line of Israel, God's people, and ultimately to the Messiah. So that's the the, the story, that's the illustration. And then in verse 24, Paul says, this can be interpreted allegorically. Now just real quick, just to make clear, what he's saying here is I'm going to use this story in a figurative way to teach you a lesson. That's what allegory does. Most of the time in modern day allegory is a fake story made up to teach a lesson. This is not a fake story. This is a true story that Paul is using to figuratively teach us a lesson here about works and faith. And so he says here, these women represent two covenants. You have Hagar, who corresponds to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the place where Moses received the law. So he's saying Hagar is matched up with the law, which means that her slavery, her being a slave, was akin to our slavery to sin because of the law. And then he does a weird, on a weird thing, he does a, an offensive thing to the Jews right here. He connects her to Arabia, which were not God's people, and then to Jerusalem and to the Jews. He says the ones who are in slavery to the law and slavery to sin are the Jews and they're matched with Hagar. Then he goes on he says and then Sarah she represents the heavenly Jerusalem or in other words heaven when Jerusalem's going to come down a new heaven new earth the whole thing for all those who have put their faith in Jesus who've been saved by the gospel they get to be part of the promise of eternity. And Sarah represents the promise in this future eternity with Christ where we are free from sin and we are free from the the pain of this world and we are living in faith with Jesus. And then he says she is connected to the people of God. Those who have faith like Abraham. Those are the true people. Not just those who are of Jewish heritage, but those who have faith in Jesus. And then he gives us a gospel application in verse 28. He says, you are children of promise. Because of your faith in Jesus, you are children of promise. He says, but just like at that time, the son of the flesh persecuted the son of the spirit. So again, going back to the story real quick. Isaac's born... They have a big ceremony to welcome him into the family, and Ishmael mocks him at the ceremony, persecutes him because he's the, the, the younger brother, second guy, like whatever, right? Ishmael thought he was it. And Paul uses that, again, as it, figuratively to say, those who are self-righteous and are doing their own thing through the flesh are always going to mock and persecute those who are trying to live by the Spirit. He says, so also it is now. The Galatians were experiencing this with the Judaizers. These false teachers had come in and they were mocking them and they were persecuting them because they said, yeah, you believe in Jesus, but you don't follow the law. You have all this bad stuff in your past. You're not circumcised. They had all the list of reasons why they weren't good enough to be part of the family of God. And they were persecuting them. Today, for us, it comes as well in many forms, some more obvious, some more subtle. You have the mainstream liberal denominations that mock us for our lack of human rituals and lack of rights and lack of all the traditions that to them prove their faith. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the fundamental conservatives who mock our lack of religious rules and restrictions and fences that to them prove to god their own holiness and then outside of maybe even the normal religious spectrum you have the progressive secularists who mock our outdated bible that doesn't speak to today anymore because it doesn't line up with all of their modern idols that they worship of race and gender and sexuality and convenience and money Humans are constantly trying to build false gods and idols that they can worship for their own purposes to prove their self-righteousness and their self-achievement and they will attack and attempt to tear down anyone else who is trying to follow God by faith. This isn't new, friends. We might be experiencing it at new, in new ways and in new levels in our country, but this is not new. This has been happening from the beginning. And God still calls us to faith. I love Paul's response. Last thing here, it says, but what does Scripture say? By the way, always the right answer. Right? No matter what the problem is, no matter what issue you're facing, like, this is always the right question to ask. What does Scripture say? What does God's authority, what does His Word say on this issue? And Paul gives us the answer. He says, cast out the slave. Again, remember the slave here represents the ways of the world. The ways of sin. The ways of the flesh. The the earning of your own righteousness. He says, get rid of that. Get rid of anything that's in that category. He says, they shall not inherit with the free. Nothing else in this world can get you to God. Only faith in Jesus. Paul says, get rid of all the other stuff. He says, we are not children of the slave, but of the free. He says, for freedom, for freedom from works, for freedom from sin, for freedom from death, Christ has set you free. Christ has set you free. Not Micah. Not Harvest Church. Not America. Not whatever other name you want to put in there. Christ has set you free. Only he can do that. We can do nothing to set ourselves free. There's no other human on this planet that can set you free. There's no other substance or issue or group that you can belong to that's going to set you free from the slavery of sin in your heart and in your life. Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. once you have received freedom through faith in Jesus, we never have to return to the slavery of self-righteousness and earning anything with God. We are free through faith in Jesus. I am a child of God and a slave no more. No more. Paul is telling us, he's he's encouraging us, he's exhorting us stand in freedom. Do not submit to slavery anymore. It's over. Through faith in Christ, I am free from all of that. Both the slavery of sin and the slavery of self righteousness. And Christ is the only one who can redeem us. Remember, redeem us, buy us out of slavery from both. And. Adopt me into God's eternal family. It's all through him. And if Christ sets you free, you are forever a son or a daughter, not a slave. Stand, let's pray. Let's respond in song. Heavenly Father, God, we bow before you again this morning. God, thankful for this truth today, God. Lord, so many of us have already experienced this. We have lived it. We know that it's true because you have done it in us and through us. But God, help us to remember. Lord, so often the Christian life is simply having to remember what you've already told us is true. Lord, remind our hearts, remind our minds today, God, that we are sons and daughters of the King. We are slaves no more. And God, help us to walk in that freedom through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we always, always, always look to you in faith. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that we are a child of God. pray all this in Christ's name.